You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. We have Managing Editor Ed Harrison standing by with Ash Pennington, ready to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over the biggest stories today in markets and the coronavirus. Starting out, the U.S. meatpacking industry is getting hit hard by COVID-19. At least 19 meat processing plants have been forced offline as coronavirus cases continue to mount within the industry. As of yesterday, there have been over 4,100 reported positive cases tied to meatpacking plants at 75 different facilities across 25 states, and at least 18 reported worker deaths across nine plants, that's according to the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. The forced shutdowns are reverberating throughout the supply chain. Roughly 10% of beef processing capacity has been curtailed, 18% for chickens, and pork capacity reduced by as much as a third. John Tyson, chairman of Tyson Foods, noted in a letter on Sunday that, quote, the food supply is vulnerable and that plants are being forced to close and millions of pounds of meat will disappear from the supply chain. Producers are left with nowhere to sell their livestock and are forced to depopulate their herds. According to one report, a major chicken producer had to depopulate over 2 million birds. The crisis is causing a wide swing in the market for meat. Pork prices are now well above their lows and boxed beef is now the most expensive it's ever been. It will be interesting to see how things shake out. It should be noted that there's no evidence that coronavirus is transmitted via food. But one thing you may want to keep an eye out for is meat shortages, which do loom on the horizon and are projected to begin occurring within two weeks. It's rumored that President Trump may soon order meat processing plants to stay open in order to prevent rationing. Moving on, in the U.S. today, we have reached 1 million confirmed cases. As many states either begin transitioning into reopening the economy or continue mulling over their decision to do so. Daily net active cases hover around the same level as they were a few weeks ago. And total cases in the U.S. don't show signs of slowing down yet. However, if the U.S. curve follows the pattern of Europe's, it may start losing momentum in a couple weeks. With the rest of the world in the throes of the outbreak in the last week, China's daily confirmed case count has gone down dramatically, and all other data suggests that China has passed the peak of the epidemic. We've known that the intensity of their outbreak has died down for a while now, but China is starting to loosen restrictions and reopen the economy. However, their recovery is highly dependent on how much other countries will retreat from the old globalization structure. Beijing has been receiving more criticism about how they've handled the coronavirus outbreak, and Chinese officials are aware that the backlash could prove to be a detriment to their labor market, in particular in the short term. Yet, China's industrial capacity is still something to be reckoned with, and Xi Jinping will be determined to ensure that China is still a strong competitor in the global economy. China's prosperity and future are strongly linked to how globalization will change and evolve in the coming months and years. Now let's turn it over to Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison for their analysis. Ash, take it away. Thanks, Nick. It's Tuesday, April 28th, 2020, just after market close in New York. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision, joined by Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. 
Good to talk to you as always. So another day grinding forward. What are you looking at? So actually, you know, I'm thinking about uh, what we were talking about yesterday in terms of Europe, in terms of the release of lockdown, and I'm thinking about oil in particular. And uh, in general, I'm thinking about comparisons to the Great Depression and what are the, the contrasts there. I saw an article in particular uh, that I thought was great. Uh, Jeremy Warner on the one side talking about uh, the ability, f this is in the Telegraph uh, of the UK, uh, the ability for the economy to avoid a depression and Ambrose Evans Pritchard talking on the other side about the likelihood that, you know, we have a lot more downside. Yeah, that was one of the best things I read today as well. Frame that argument for the viewers. Yeah, so I think that the it's the debate that people are having and how to frame it in terms of w what's going on with this uh, this difference between the stock market where it is now and the real economy and how do we close that gap? And the one side is is the the concept that we can close the gap by the government basically filling in enough of the gap until the economy restarts so that we don't have a Great Depression-like scenario. And I think that's the optimistic uh, scenario. They're basically taking tail risk off the table, and they're saying that, okay, we're not going to go to a V per se, but we will actually avoid a Great Depression scenario, which to a certain degree was a policy error on the part of U.S. government and other governments with the gold standard in the Great Depression. Uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, on the other hand, says that there's a huge chasm and it can't be closed by government largesse. And eventually what it means is, is, is that you're going to see another leg down in the Great Depression in particular. We saw 80 uh, percent down after the first up move. And he thinks that we're going to see a similar sort of dynamic. And what that means is, is that you're going to have knock on effects that, you know, a rolling stone gathers no moss to the downside. And, and that's going to be very difficult to arrest. Right. And here's a relevant quote from that. Uh, for now, markets are pricing in a successful one and done triumph over COVID-19. The NASDAQ index is a whisker shy of its all time high. And the S&P 500 is where it was last August, as if nothing much has happened in the meantime. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've talked about this almost ad nauseum here in terms of how you're going to deal with that. My general sense, especially in the U.S., is, is that, you know, you, there's downside risk to that closing. And that is, is, is that the August number that he talks about, it's really almost impossible to believe that we could be sitting here eight and that we're still at about the same level when we know in likelihood in August shares were fully priced at that point in time. So we've had a massive event, uh, a complete shutdown of the economy, and yet we're still in this range. Uh, how much longer can uh, investors hold up is the question. Yeah, and just to put some numbers around that, S&P closed uh, basically flat for the day, down one half of 1% at the 28.63 level. Uh, that's up about 1%, 0.9% to be exact from the prior week close, uh, and down from the all-time high, again, only 15.4%. You know, Ed, I'm curious, reading that article, um, to, it seems as though their best case scenario, as you sort of suggested, has effectively massive stimulus on the fiscal side and also on the monetary side baked into it. In other words, my interpretation of that article was the only way the best case can come to pass is if there is massive support from governments all around the world to support 
demand to prevent this from coming a Great Depression. Have I read that too pessimistically, or is that your takeaway as well? Oh, yeah, that's my takeaway. In fact, I mean, that's part of what I was saying yesterday. Basically, uh, and, you know, let's put it in a, in a framing. Uh, we had a 13 PMI, 13.5, I think, PMI in the Eurozone as an example. That was the number that we last got. So that says, you know, Great Depression-like scenario in Europe as we speak now. And so then the question is, uh, where do we go from here uh, in order to fill that gap. Government is going to make up some of the gap, obviously. And then once you release from lockdown, some of that gap is also going to be made up. But let's just say, as an example, we were at a 20% level. That's what the 13 represents at the, uh, you know, the depression-like scenario. With the government filling in you know, a, a 10, 15, 20% of, of the, the norm that gets you to about 40%. So you're at 40% levels. You can't take that forward a very long before you have the knock on effects that destroy uh, capital. People go bankrupt, companies go bankrupt, and therefore the financial system sees their capital destroyed by write downs. So you have to release the lockdown at some point in time. When the lockdown comes, goes away, you're still going to have the government largesse. You have to have the government largesse because you're not going to snap back to 100 uh, percent. We were talking about Bill Gates as an example. He talks about two years before you have full normalcy, you know, events, uh, uh, sporting uh, events, uh, the hotels, all of those industries are going to be in a world of hurt for a very long time. And so as a result, let's say you have government fill in the gap 10 to 15 percent, you get back to about a 60 percent level plus a 10 to 15 percent, a baseline then gets you to about 75 percent. That's where you are in at the end of Q2 going into Q3. That's not necessarily a Great Depression scenario. That is a severe recession, worse than the Great Financial Crisis, but it's something that if government continues to pump the money in and to support asset prices with, um, you know, government bond purchases, you you might be able to 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 eke it by, you know, get through it. Yeah, you know, you make so many important points in there. The um, you know w w the first thing that came to mind when we were having that conversation, and we talked a little bit offline about this, is that 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 rosiest scenario that was in the Telegraph piece uh, so with the government support doesn't really account uh, for the kind of malinvestment, misallocation of assets, mispricing of risk. This is something that you've talked about. It's something that Roger Hurst has talked about a great deal about how central banks are not going to be as effective, obviously, uh, as the private sector at allocating capital, assigning risk, uh, and in general running an economy. That's almost a given. You know, you also said something that, uh, that caught my attention where you were talking about the notion that it's going to be at least two years for a recovery. There's a new survey out of CNBC today saying that one third of respondents uh, believe it will take until 2022 for the economy to fully recover. Now, one of the questions you could say, I guess, well, maybe the third of people are being too pessimistic. But in economics, uh, unlike you know physics, for example, the perception becomes the reality. George Soros talks about this in the context of reflexivity. Um, but the reality is that you have a substantial percentage of people who are allocating assets in their own businesses. I'm not necessarily talking about hedge fund managers here. I'm talking about the man or woman who owns the corner store. You're talking about things like planning expenditures, planning hiring, planning capital expenditure, 
all of these things are impacted by the perception of what's going to happen in the economy. And to a certain extent in economics, perception becomes reality. So that is a dangerous trend. The idea that people believe that we're going to be in this recession until 2022, you know, what, what's your feeling about that perception or reflexivity issue around perception? You know, the first thing that came to mind when you said that, I was thinking about the, let's call it the Greece-Switzerland dichotomy. And mm-hmm. I, I, this is an outgrowth of an article I read in a Swiss uh, newspaper. And basically what it was said is, is that the Swiss uh, tourism industry is uh, going to be rebating like mad in order to get to lure Swiss tourists to their destinations. Why? Because those tourists are not gonna be going to Greece anytime soon. Not for the next two years, they're not. And when they go to the places in Switzerland, A, they're going to be spending less money because they're not going to be flying. They're going to be going somewhere domestically. And B, right. uh, there's going to be huge discounting. So right there, this this tells you how this, this whole psychology works. Once you get into that psychology, it's, it's completely sustainable for a, a, a longer period of time. And they're going to be winners and losers. But overall, the economy is going to be less than it was before. Just by mere fact, when you think of it, I think of it in terms of where I am. I might have gone to, say, uh, the Grand Canyon, or I might have gone to Mexico for a vacation. Instead, now I'm going to go to uh, the uh, Delmarva Beach, which is really close by. Right. I'm gonna spend, we're going to spend less. We're going to have some precautionary savings. And we're going to get acclimated to, to that uh, frame of mind. And so this whole concept of, yes, it's going to last into t- t- 2022 is going to drive my actual consumption patterns. Right. And also keep the family in the bubble of the car rather than uh, on an airplane. Exactly. So I think that, you know, you're seeing you're going to see lasting behaviors. It's going to be a U slash L shaped outcome in all probability. That doesn't mean that over the short to medium term, you're not going to see outperformance. Certainly in Europe, this is my point from yesterday, is is that you're going to see a snapback in Europe that's uh, that's healthier than we anticipated. But it doesn't mean that when you think about uh, the longer term, when you think about the malinvestment that you're talking about, it, it, you don't have a zombie-like uh, Japanese outcome where basically you're uh, paying companies that really should be out of business to stay in business and to continue in their zombie state, competing against you know, more efficient, better uh, capitalized, you know, better companies and, and pulling the, the entire productivity levels down. Yeah, and that's a nightmare scenario for anyone who's followed the Japanese lost decade, now lost decades. You know, when you were talking about the shape of the recovery, um, I, I, I pine for the days when we just had U and V shape to be our options. You know, and uh, Nuriel Rabini a few weeks ago referred to it as an I shaped recovery because it was literally a straight line going straight down. <laughs> I did an interview this morning with uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who's going to appear later on the platform. It's a really interesting interview about the kind of the West Coast tech perspective on what's happening uh, in uh, the coronavirus crisis. And he called it a Y shaped recovery, basically a total bifurcation of the economy from before to after. Um, and, um, 
you know, so I guess the, the fact that we're nostalgic for U-shaped recovery may uh, may tell us something. You know, it's been a it's been a, a, a difficult, I think, few days here in New York. We we uh, the, you know the total number of cases now in the United States has uh, passed the one million mark. Uh, New York City, according to the New York City Health website, which is an excellent resource uh, clearinghouse of data, uh, now has twelve thousand uh, confirmed deaths and fifty four hundred suspected deaths. That's a total of seventeen thousand presumed deaths uh, due to coronavirus. And, and to put that in context, um, you know, that's uh, now six times the level of people who died in New York City uh, on 9-11, which, you know, is a, is a tragedy that uh, was prior uh, to, at least in recent memory, certainly without peer or um, or comparison. So it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult time here, and there's this perception I get at least of a, of kind of a slow grinding feeling about how long this crisis will take. I think there was a fair amount of optimism at the beginning, just because we didn't really understand that perception. The things that we've been talking about heading out to 2022. I, I do a Zoom call with some reporter friends, and uh, someone was joking that uh, when the lockdown went into effect. Uh, that there was a thought like, boy, I hope this will be over by the end of the week. And this is not a problem that's going to be over in the foreseeable future. There's another story uh, out of New York that, um, you know, again, I guess you can say it's anecdotal, but there's a sort of uh, an emotional resonance that it seems to be a, a metaphor for something uh, broader. We had a superstar doctor here in New York, New York City, a woman named uh, Dr. Lorna Green, who is medical director at uh, one of the facilities at New York Presbyterian Hospital, one of the great hospitals, not just in New York, but in the world. Uh, she got COVID, um, recovered from the virus, uh, went back to work, was sent home because she still wasn't 100%, uh, and, uh, and she committed suicide yesterday at 49 uh, years of age. Uh, this, the, the amount of stress and pressure that the frontline workers are under who are treating people, um, who are policing, who are doing essential services is pretty uh, extraordinary. And again, we say unprecedented. We had an EMT here in New York City uh, who committed suicide. His dad was a New York City cop, shot himself with his gun. I mean, a terrible, terrible, wrenching story. Uh, and you have to wonder at what point... Um, well, you just have to wonder what the effect of this is on the on the collective psyche. And, uh, you know, obviously, these are stories that are very difficult for us to deal with emotionally, but you also have to wonder what's the second order effect of its impact on business. On, yeah, Ash, it's, it's on, like war. You know, like we're living a, a wartime economy. That's really what's happening. And when you think about the government response in terms of we'll do whatever it takes kind of thing, you know, uh, liberals would say, yeah, why is it that we can't uh, spend in peacetime for education and all these other things like we do in war? When war comes, you, it, you know, it, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you'll do whatever it takes. Yes, that's because we're living in war right now that's that that's what you're you're seeing these these are the the casualties of of a war and we want to win that war yeah i think i think that's very well said and and to that point uh one of the things that has been something that i've been beginning to watch is the increased focus on us uh, food supply chains especially the u.s meat supply the ceo of tyson has warned of some potential problems uh meat workers union uh one of the meat workers unions in the midwest is talking about uh about fatalities caused uh, working in the plants uh and there's a there's a, a rumor out now that was run as a front headline story on bloomberg about president trump announcing some action to try and keep the plants open. Obviously, it would be a tremendous impact on morale. I don't think anyone in our lifetime remembers a time where there wasn't enough meat for people to eat.
Right. And, you know, I mean, this uh, uh, this has so many cross currents. The, the one cross current there is the uh, dichotomy that people say is false, but in this case is true, between safety and, and the economy. You know, we're talking about uh, something that's very basic to people, meat, and then we're talking about people dying because these are hot spots in terms of coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, outbreaks, and they're trying to stop it by uh, basically shutting down our, our food supply. I was talking to Roger about this in some capacity two weeks ago with regard to oil. And he said, you know, look, when you look at countries like Venezuela, Nigeria, et cetera, when it comes to COVID-19, they're going to get someone out there on those rigs. No doubt no, that, that this, this oil will, will flow. They're not going to shut the oil down to make it happen. What we're seeing with regard to Smithfield and all these other places, Tyson's, is exactly the same sort of mentality. What Trump is doing is he's t saying to us, this is so vital that I'm going to do the exact same thing that Roger is saying that the Venezuelans, the Nigerians would do with their oil. He's going to mandate that, you know, we, we continue to allow this to, to proceed. And we'll just have to see, you know, what the outcome is from uh, both a, a, you know, a humanitarian perspective and from a, um, a political perspective. You know, Ed, we're not used to comparing U.S. policy to Venezuela and Nigeria. But as you say, these are war times, and it seems as though effectively we're going to have to do different things to be able to manage markets to keep things, basic things like the food supply flowing. Yeah, and uh, it's just uh, it's uh, it's an amazing thing to say, but these are the extraordinary times that we live in. Let me just say that you know, from my perspective, I think on some level you could call a, a, a depression, maybe a depression with a small D, if not necessarily a big D, a baseline scenario in terms of the outcome. If you have an L-shaped recovery out of you know a loss of twenty or thirty percent uh, quarter on quarter annualized GDP, and you're looking two years out. If that's not a depression, I don't know what is. And the question is, is you know, how much uh, are we going to be able to mitigate some of the worst parts of how this is going to play out over time? This is one of them. One for me that I think of in particular is the banking sector. You know, when credit gets destroyed, that's when uh, the credit supply shrinks. That's also when the economy shrinks, and then you have all sorts of knock-on effects. This is what we're trying to avoid. This is what we're, we're trying to make not a, a second Great Depression through managing that process. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually relatively um, bullish on the banking sector for, for a couple of reasons. First, because it's uh, far better capitalized than it was going into the, the 2008 crisis. Uh, and second, because I think the banking sector, um, you, you could say, unfortunately, in a broader context, has been greatly consolidated since 2008, but it does make it easier to support for the Fed. Now, you can say that in a in a broader context for a for a healthy economy that may be uh, maybe a detriment, but in this particular circumstance, it probably creates the ability to push liquidity into the system or at least to maintain uh, the banking sector in a relatively stable way. Now, the question then becomes, can those banks that have been more centralized, though well capitalized, lend to all the small and medium-sized enterprises in the economy in order to keep credit flowing and to keep the economy rolling? Well, you know what I would say, I would ask even a different question. I would say that in a world in which uh, we have, um, you know, originate to, to distribute, you know, we, we already know this in terms of asset-backed securities like MBS, uh, you know, like CLOs, et cetera, 
and, and, and especially in the United States, in which a lot of the assets are not on the balance sheets of banks themselves, but rather on the bank, on the, you know, are distributed out into asset managers. Is it how much can the asset managers take? I mean, this is why the Fed is intervening, because we understand that the the financial system that we have today, the, the shadow banks, if you will, which include asset managers now, uh, is it's that's where the credit uh, destruction and the credit creation lies. So to the degree that they take losses, uh, that's where we're having going to have the problems going forward. So it's a much more complex financial system than we had back in the Great Depression. Uh, so it's not clear how much better. We, we're in a situation to handle any sort of longer-term uh, stress, war-like stress from a pandemic. Right. And the shadow banking system, uh, most of those institutions are not eligible uh, to receive credit at the discount window, uh, although there is some speculation uh, that they are able to receive flows of credit uh, through their prime brokerage arrangements with the large banks through some of the liquidity facilities that the Fed has brought online. But that's still, I think, an untested hypothesis. Yeah. So, I mean, just imagine this as an example that, uh, you know, uh, shares fall 30 percent from here. People start uh, taking their money out of accounts. Uh, you have some credit write downs. They're taking losses uh, that, you know, it's, maybe they wouldn't have taken them on a mark to market basis. But because, you know, you have an outright default, you have to mark the, that asset down. Suddenly then, uh, you know, new issuance comes to market. No one's going to be there to buy. So suddenly, it's not about the credit itself from a bank. It's about markets seizing up, there being no liquidity. So that's why the Fed has intervened, because they understand that if they don't provide the liquidity and keep these markets flowing, that the lifeblood of the U.S. economy is going to grind to a halt. It's, it's a different story in Europe, because a much larger percentage of the credit base is on the, of the books of the balance sheets of banks. So right. the banking sector itself is much more important there. It's not as market-centric. So right. levitating assets, you know, the, re the reason the Fed is, is intervening so aggressively is because of the transformation of the U.S. economy in, in that way. Yeah, you know, we heard a lot about that very point uh, during uh, during 2007, 2008, and 2009. The idea that uh, the banking sector in Europe was a much more systemically important sector because of the relative uh, lack of development in their capital markets, especially their bond markets. That large corporations typically went to their lenders for revolving credit lines and so forth uh, to fund their operations. Does that make you more or less bullish about the European recovery, and why? It makes me, over the longer term, less bullish. I think when you look at uh, uh, the structure of the Eurozone as a whole, in terms of um, the uh, the problems that they have with uh, regard to a lack of uh, a w one fiscal authority and one authority for monetary policy at the same level, and then when you look at these questions that you're talking about, and the undercapitalization of their banking sector, it makes you think that's not good. Uh, I think that we've had a, a comment or two in the uh, in the comments from the Daily Briefing, one from Ida P, uh, continually talking about uh, private debt in particular. Um, when you look at private debt, actually Italy is not one of the countries that is the worst in the private debt. They actually have low private debt. It's really public debt where the problems. Mm -hmm. 
when you start looking at private debt, you're looking at places like Denmark, you know, because they had this huge bubble in housing. Uh, you're talking about um, the, the, the Netherlands and France, interestingly enough, when you combine public and private debt together, that is a, a house of cards that is is potentially combustible. Um, Ambrose Evans Pritchard wrote at the Telegraph on Friday about France becoming much more aligned in terms of its profile with the uh, Southern Europeans in terms of debt to GDP. You know, when you look at how the public debt in France has progressed ever since the great financial crisis, it's just gone straight up. There's been a huge divergence between France and Germany over that time frame. And because of COVID-19, that divergence is even greater. So I think France is certainly a country to watch with regard to public and private debt combined. But when you look at the fragilities of Europe in terms of an undercapitalization of the banking sector, private debt is where it's at. Yeah, you know, it makes me wonder, uh, do we have a house of cards or do we have 19 different houses of cards, each built in different ways with different decks, uh, with different structural problems and different strengths? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, because after the European sovereign debt crisis, I'm much less likely to think that uh, you are going to see a breakup. I know that we've had Brexit, uh, but I think the, the lesson from Greece was that you can maintain a lot of strain on the system without actually having a redenomination uh, and an exit from the Eurozone. So maybe at the last second they come together, as always, with some sort of uh, solution that's uh, jury-rigged together. But at the end of the day, they're very different countries, one from the next. Right. And until you get some sort of fiscal uh, cohesion, really, I think that you're, you are going to have those 19 different solutions, as you talked about, 19 different houses of cards. I wouldn't hold my breath for a fiscal union, a transfer union, or a banking union in the middle of this crisis. No. I think that you really you're going to have to see the redenomination risk on the table, put on the table explicitly by the likes of Italy for mm. any sort of movement from Germany, from Austria, from the Netherlands. You know, and I know we're, we're running a little bit low on time here, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, the oil markets more specifically. We saw another day of whipsawing prices, especially on WTI, uh, and an increasing uh, question about something that you've been ahead of the curve on talking about, which is the storage capacity. Um, and um, I'm curious what you're thinking about that right now. So two thoughts. Um, you know, I saw that we had uh, a negative pricing overnight in uh, put options for the first time. So that that was kind of interesting. Uh, so it's not just that you had negative prices on the front month contract of WTI. You actually had uh, put options that were trading at negative prices. WTI, in terms of the super contango, uh, we're getting back into this position with June, July contract role that we were in with May and June. So we're seeing uh, that kind of volatility where you're trading with an 11, a 12 handle for the front month June contract, and then you're trading with a 20 handle for the next month. But that's that's number one only. If you look at Brent, actually Brent is breaking down for the front month and 20 contract into the 20 handle. So $20 oil is now the norm across all different varieties of oil. That's th that is 
a horrific number in terms of the ability for the oil sector to withstand uh, this downturn over the longer term. You can't have $20 Brent and not have massive carnage in the oil sector. So those are my two takeaways. Yes, there's the storage problem, but uh, at the same time, Brent is telling you that there's a fundamental problem with demand that is going to crush this industry. Yeah, and I think flowing forth from that, the second order effects are the potential for uh, greater uh, geopolitical uncertainty and instability as well. Yeah, without a doubt, because of uh, Iran in particular, but Venezuela, there are many other places where there uh, you, uh, you could have some sort of geopolitical instability. Yeah. And final thoughts, what are you looking uh, What are you looking at uh, based on the things that we've talked about today for forward indicators to give some sense of sentiment or direction? Yeah. So I want to see more about the uh, lockdown release. My general view is that you have a basing effect uh, uh, because of how far down we went and that sentiment will be driven over the near term as a result of this basing effect uh, and the snapback. Uh, you could you could go from 100 to 30 and then back up to 70 and then there's a slow grind up to 90 over a longer period of time but it's that move from 30 to 70 that will drive sentiment over the the short term and i think that's what i'm looking for particularly in europe places like germany places like uh uh like denmark just to see you know, what we can glean about uh, release of lockdown. And I'd like yeah. to see that as compared to Georgia, Texas, Alaska, places like that in the United States, which are much less prepared for their lockdowns to, uh, to be relaxed. You know, it's so early in the game with this in terms of something that we've never done before that we don't even have a framework for that discussion yet, right? There are some places, I think it's New Zealand that has these uh, in phases with different degrees uh, that represent different levels of restriction. And if we had that, if we had the beginnings of that, we could start to think about it. But we've got 50 different states, um, right, with 50 different policies toward this. Uh, and then, you know, further differences by municipality here in uh, in the state of New York, for example, the difference between what's happening upstate versus what's happening downstate. We really need to get a handle on precisely that issue so that we can get a sense of not even what the snapback is, but what the release that will cue the snapback is. But, you know, look, the the United States, I think that there's an argument uh, about, you know, how much the, the welfare state really is debilitating over the longer term for Europe versus the United States. But we're seeing the Achilles heel of the of the American model with a very poor so social safety net, because at the end of the day, what it boils down to is, is that you have a very disruptive uh, problem. Uh, with regard to income for Americans as a result of this crisis. And the, the, the pain is much more acute in the United States, and the need to end lockdown now is more acute as a result of that. That's why we're seeing what we're seeing, is because people want it to be over, because otherwise they'll be penniless and, and you know going to bread lines. That, right. That's the reality that we're living. So that's the war that, that we're fighting right now, and we want to win that war. 
Yeah, and as you say, look, those uh, those costs of the European-style welfare states accrue over time, right? These are things that can be really devastating to the long-term economic trajectory of a country. Um, but we're experiencing the downsides of our own system in the short term. So it's almost this difference between uh, a chronic problem and something that's very acute that may right. potentially even risk driving worse policy decisions. Right. Exactly. Very well put, uh, Ash, because that's that's definitely how I would say it. Yeah. Well, that's probably not the most upbeat place to end it, but it's probably <laughs> the most natural conclusion to this conversation that we've had, at least. And thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure, Ash. And I will not see you tomorrow. You're going to be talking to Roger. So I will see you next week. See you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.